Well, good morning, everyone. Why don't you open your Bibles with me to the New Testament, Luke chapter 1. Uh, and in case you didn't recognize it, uh, what you just heard was the music of Vivaldi, and what you read on the screen were the words of Mary from Luke 1, uh, from what's historically known as the Magnificat, or Mary's Song. Uh, it's a song of worship, um, of joy, of faith, uh, with her opening line being, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Uh, in fact, Mary goes on to sing about you know, God's goodness and His grace, he, how He extends mercy to those who humbly revere Him. And uh, it's just a beautiful expression of her, her, you know, her personal response to God, who he is and what he's done. But here's the deal. This is where Mary ends up, right? I mean, it's, it's not where her journey begins. And I don't know about you, but for me, it's kind of hard to appreciate Mary's song without first understanding her story, her whole story. One that wasn't always filled with worship and joy and, and faith. I mean, keep in mind, Mary had a, a pretty rough experience, and initially, at least, she was more about fear and doubt than anything else, which is why, in a sense, her, her experience um, is, is a paradigm of ours in many ways. Let me explain what I mean by that, but first, let me read for you where her story begins. It's in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. We're told that God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary. You, you found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you're to call uh, call him Jesus, and he'll be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he'll be, he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. Now, I think we can all agree that Ma Mary's role in God's unfolding plan of, of redemption was quite unique. Yeah, I mean, she was the first to hear the name Jesus. She was uh, first to get specifics on how the, the Messiah would miraculously enter our world. She got a full explanation of how deity was descending uh, into time and space to rescue humanity. And, and as a woman, obviously, she played a, a key role in the incarnation itself. And so all of these unique things about Mary tend to distance her from us and, and, and in terms of how we relate to her. But there's something about Mary and her experience that may have the opposite effect and actually draw us closer to her. I mean, if you think about how the angel appears and he, he tells her God was going to graciously, he's choosing her to, you know, to give birth to the promised Messiah. And in the process of that, he makes some radical statements. The angel says that her son, that she was to name Jesus, which means the Lord saves, would live and reign forever, that the child would uh, be deity in the flesh, and, and in this child, God would, would make himself vulnerable. And try to imagine uh, a young teenage girl experiencing and hearing all that. It's almost as if the angel Gabriel realized that this was, this was going to be a pretty difficult thing for Mary to, to accept, which is why, um, maybe why he, he repeats himself. He says, Mary, your son, this son of yours, it will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. Do you get that, Mary? His kingdom will never end. In other words, Mary, he, we're talking about you giving birth to deity. God eternal. But forget deity. I mean, Mary kind of got stuck on the whole giving birth part. She says, how can this be true? And, you know, I may be young, but I'm not ignorant. I know how things work. I understand the whole boy-girl relationship thing, the pregnancy thing. I'm not, and I'm not sexually active. I don't have a husband, at least not yet. And the angel says, well, you're not going to need one because the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. 
So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And again, Gabriel is repeating himself because he's already told her uh, that the, her child would be the Son of the Most High. And uh, in the Old Testament, that Most High is a Hebrew title for God Almighty. In other words, the angel wasn't informing Mary that her son would be a, just a holy person. He's telling her that her son would be the Most High himself, deity taking on flesh and blood, assuming a human nature. In fact, Gabriel's use of the title Most High is, for me at least, fascinating because in a sense, in a sense he says, look, the Most High will become low. Uh, the Almighty will become uh, weak, weak as a little child. God will become vulnerable. And this idea of vulnerability is a big part of what makes the news of this child uh, so, so good. Here's why. It's impossible uh, to, and mo most of you recognize this, it's impossible to get into a healthy, meaningful, and intimate relationship without, without becoming vulnerable. Now, I often meet with, with young people who are considering marriage, and sometimes someone will say to me, you know, I, I'm getting serious with this person, and we're talking about marriage, and I... I I'm thinking about it, but man, I just want to be, I want to be absolutely sure. I don't, I don't want to make, make a mistake, mistake. I don't want to get hurt. And I get what they're saying, but there's a part of me that wants to respond, well, okay, then you might want to forget about marriage because, you know, there's, there's no way to be 100% sure on that. And there's no way to be in a close, you know, healthy, loving, long-term relationship uh, or even a friendship without opening your heart to another person in such a way that they, they can potentially, you know, break it. Personal vulnerability is essential to any good, healthy, healthy relationship. Now, realize that when it comes to world religion, Christianity alone says that God has done this. It alone asserts that God doesn't just love us in some kind of abstract, theoretical way. He's proven his love. And if God is just some sort of, you know, life force of energy out there in the universe somewhere or some cosmic creator who cares for us conceptually, how does that make him vulnerable? Well, it doesn't. But... If Christmas is true and the gospel of Jesus is true, then God has proven his love because he became vulnerable. He became a baby. And you can't, you know, you can't get any more vulnerable than that. God put himself in such a position that we could harm him, you know, that he was fragile, someone who could be overpowered, betrayed, wounded, tortured, killed. Uh, and he was. Why? Because he loves us. And so he's proven it. God has graciously come to find us, to get us, to help us, to heal us, to rescue us. And he made himself vulnerable to do it. And see, that's what makes the good news so good. And understand, at its very core, Christianity is not about faith in some religious system. It's about faith in a relationship with someone. And keep in mind, you know, Jesus, Jesus didn't come claiming to be a holy man or a holy prophet. He declared himself God incarnate, deity in the flesh. And it drove, you know, at the time, it drove the religious experts crazy. It drove them into an offended frenzy, which makes sense to me because, I mean, that's a pretty significant and radical declaration. And at least from my perspective, it's not reasonable to simply, simply say you like Jesus or respect Jesus as a great teacher, a great person. The extreme grandiosity of his claim leaves really only two options. Either Jesus was who he claimed to be or, or he wasn't. And if not, then he's, you know, he's a fraud. And his teaching is nothing more than the rantings of a raging narcissist. And, and all, of, all of this is a sham. Christmas is just a joke. But, but if, if Jesus wasn't is the son of the most high, almighty God who, who's proven his love by miraculously lowering himself and making himself vulnerable to us for us, 
if that's true, then we who believe will and should center our lives around him. And consider the implications. If we truly believe, you know, down deep in our mind, our heart, our soul, that God loves us enough to become vulnerable, and the reality of, of that, and the reality of God's grace just kind of floods over us and into our lives, then we in turn will be able to love and be gracious and be vulnerable with other people. In addition, if we believe God actually made himself vulnerable to the point of death, then when we suffer and we recognize you know, how limited we are, how fragile life is, and how difficult and painful our world can be, in Jesus we have a, we have a resource to help us face you know, whatever comes our way. When writing about the Incarnation, the uh, well-known English poet and writer Dorothy Sayers in an essay entitled The Greatest Drama Ever Staged put it this way. She said, for whatever reason God chose to make man as he is, limited in suffering and subject to sorrows and death, at least we know he had the honesty and courage to take his own medicine. God can ask nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience, from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it well worthwhile. And she's right. I mean, that was the message to Mary. That was the good news of God's love and grace and vulnerable incarnation. And this is what she heard. This is what she ultimately accepted by faith. But here's what really, here's what really resonates with me when it comes to Mary. And that is she starts off as a skeptic, right? It's true. She, she, doesn't, she doesn't immediately buy into to the whole thing. She exhibits what, what you might consider to be healthy skepticism. Now, there are a lot of people in our culture today who accuse religious people and Christians alike of, of not thinking. They'll say things like, you know, you religious types just don't think. You don't ask questions. You don't process. I'm a skeptic. I'm not going to shut my brain down. I'm not going to stop reasoning and questioning and, and just believe. I'm not going to do that. And my response to that is, that fine. That's okay. Don't, don't shut down your brain. No one's suggesting you do that. Ask questions. Process as much as you want. I mean, that's what Mary did. When this angelic being appears to her, keep in mind, Mary doesn't react by saying, oh, a supernatural visitation, how nice that is, really cool. No, she doesn't say that, right? The text says that Mary was what? Greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. And, and based on the Greek terms that are used here, here's my Reiki translation, Mary had a serious problem with this vision and she was disturbed by what she was seeing and experiencing and hearing. And she started processing this in her mind, you know, what, what was happening. In fact, the Greek term that we, we use and we translate, um, we translate wondered is an ancient accounting term. It means to audit, to take stock of something, to, to be furiously rational, to think things through, add things up, do the math. And so basically the text tells us that Mary was reasoning. And she's asking herself questions like, am I really seeing and experiencing this, hearing this? Or is this a hallucination? I eat some moldy matzah or something? Well, what's going on here? For Mary, this wasn't just some subjective heart experience. It was an objective head experience. She's thinking, she's questioning, she's being rational, and she demonst demonstrates reasonable doubt, a healthy skepticism. Let me tell you something. As 21st century men and women, we who live in Western culture today, we, we have a, let's face it, we have a tendency to be a little arrogant and dismissive of people uh, in the ancient world. And we're, we're quick to kind of write them off as ignorant and naive, you know, superstitious, foolish enough to, to believe anything. And in fact, I've heard, I've heard some people suggest that Christianity was born in a pre-scientific, gullible world. Well, that's not true. I mean, understand, by the first century AD, the famed Greek physician Hippocrates had been dead 500 years. The guy was brilliant. 
He's known as the father of modern medicine. And today, most, of, most graduating medical students take the Hippocratic Oath, a vow of commitment to ethics and the science of medicine. Some of Hippocrates' writings were used as textbooks uh, in med schools well into the 19th century, and many of his observations on disease and treatments are still respected and valid today. Luke, the, uh, the author of this biography and writer of the book of Acts as well, was a Greek doctor educated in the tradition of Hippocrates. So here's my point. People in the ancient Greco-Roman world weren't a bunch of blunt-minded, ignorant bumpkins predisposed to you know, believing any, any miraculous claim or story, however absurd it might be. No. On the contrary, they were, they were bright, intelligent men and women who, who were keen observers of the human experience. They had the same IQs that we do, the same skills of observation, same ability to use logic and reason. And so I suggest that Mary responded to her experience the exact same uh, way that you or I would respond if some angelic being showed up and started talking to us. And let's not forget, you know, we, we have been trained in Western culture not to believe in the supernatural, although based on the most popular TV programming these days, uh, most Americans believe, or at least want to believe in the supernatural, but, but modernity has told us not to believe. And Mary, you know, she had her own, she had her own cultural biases and cultural training to, to overcome, because as a first century Jewish person, she was trained not to believe that God could possibly become a human being. And so the barriers that she faced were in every way as big or bigger than the ones we face. And yet, uh, yeah, a combination of evidence and experience shattered those barriers, and by faith she believed. It's exactly the, w the way it happens for us. Check this out. Earlier in the chapter, chapter 1, we're told about Mary's uncle, right? You remember the story, her uncle Zechariah? He was a priest in Jerusalem, and one day he was in the temple going about his priestly duties when an angel apparently appeared to him, and the angel said to him, don't be afraid, even though you and your wife Elizabeth, Elizabeth are old and she's barren, you're going to have a son. It's going to be a miracle. And you are to name him John, and he's going to prepare people for the coming of, of, of Messiah. And Zechariah reacts to the news by asking questions. You know, um, he's doubtful. He, he expresses skepticism. And what happens to him, remember? The angel says, okay, just for that, I'm going to strike you mute. And you're not going to speak until your son is born, nine months from now. And when you read that, you think, you know, what's going on there? I mean, why... why What's the difference? What's the difference between Zechariah and Mary? Because both of them have these supernatural encounters. Both of them were skeptical. They're startled. They're troubled. They're afraid. Both ask questions about this, that, and, or the other thing. And so they both express doubt. And yet the angel mutes Uncle Zechariah and he blesses Mary. Why? Well, I suppose there's a lot of possibilities. Maybe, maybe Zechariah got a surly angel. You know, maybe just a mean angel. Mary got a pleasant little cherub. That's a, but no, that's not true because it was the same angel, we're told, who visited them, Gabriel. Well, okay, well, maybe Gabriel was just having a bad day. You know, he was a little moody. And I suppose that's a possibility, but I don't think that's the issue. I think hidden within these two accounts is a lesson about doubt and its subtle nuances and how God responds to it. Now, let's face it, here in the educated, sophisticated Western suburbs of Chicago, uh, there are people who see spiritual doubt, you know, who see, you know, doubting God and doubting angels and doubting the supernatural and eternal life and heaven. They see all doubt as being good. You know, it's, it's the ultimate sign of true intelligence. Because intelligent people doubt everything. They refuse to believe anything that's not proven to them. On the other hand, in some religious circles, in some churches here in the Burbs, there are men and women who view doubt as all bad. It's all bad. You're never supposed to doubt. That's sinful. 
You know, ask, you know if, if you're in a youth group or if you're in a life group study or you're in a class, Bible study class or something, and you're asking too many hard questions, you need to stop. You need to be quiet. Stick a sock in it because, I mean, how dare you have doubts and concerns and questions? That's unspiritual. Some people believe that. Yet in Scripture, that's not how it works. It's not like doubt is either all good or all bad. And it, it could be, see what you think of this, it could be that there's a kind of doubt that's good and a kind of doubt that's bad. A kind of doubt that, that's good is a doubt that flows from an intelligent, open mind. A kind of doubt that's bad flows from an intelligent, closed mind. And in life, there's, there's a healthy type of skepticism that generally wants answers, uh, and an unhealthy type of skepticism that doesn't want any answers or has to have all the answers. See, I think Mary had a healthy skepticism, one which asked questions, but was open to the unexpected and willing to make changes if shown that truth the truth is other than what she originally thought. Zechariah, however, seemed to express the kind of doubt that says, hey, look, I don't care what you say or what you show me. I'm not going to believe that. It's the kind of, of closed-minded skepticism that uses questions and arguments and excuses as a way of denying truth and keeping control of your own life. Which kind of doubt and skepticism is yours? Open or closed? Uh, which kind do you have? Because we all have it. Some skepticism and doubts. I have them. I'm guessing you have some. Mary had some. But for her, see, questions flowed from an open mind, from a mind that, that believed in God and wanted some answers but didn't need all of them. A mind intelligent enough to realize that if God is indeed God, that her humanness would limit her ability to completely understand him and fully comprehend you know, who he is, what he does, why he does what he does. And as a result, Mary moved from skepticism to faith, demonstrating what, what might be described as reflective submission. In other words, she receives the news, she thinks about it, she processes it, she asks questions, and then she responds with these famous words. She says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And by referring to herself as, as a servant indicates that Mary knew that if you have faith in God, you believe he's calling you to do something with your life and, and with, with what you have, you do it. You do it. You surrender. And it... It may not be an easy thing to do. It may be a very difficult thing to do, but you offer yourself humbly uh, to God as a servant. And I'm convinced, to some degree, Mary knew what she was getting into. She knew she was in for a difficult time because if she was going to have this child, she understood that even if her fiancé, Joe, stayed with her when he found out that she was pregnant, her family, her friends... Her neighbors were going to draw some serious conclusions. Now, they check their daytimers and say, let's see here. Wait a second. Mary gets engaged. Now, all of a sudden, she's married, and suddenly has, she has this baby. I mean, there, there'd be no avoiding the rumors. In a traditional ancient Near Eastern culture, one of shame and, and honor, not to mention living in a small town, Mary would always be viewed as bearing an illegitimate kid. Her community would assume either she, you know, she either had sexual relations with Joe before they were married, which was taboo, or she cheated on Joe with someone else, which was equally as taboo. I mean, whatever the case, Jesus would always be seen as her shameful disgrace. Yet she willingly, humbly, faithfully surrenders to that possibility. She says, I am the Lord's servant. And maybe, I don't know, maybe what really sealed the deal for her is when the angel said, you'll, receive, you'll conceive it and give birth to a son, and you, you're to give him the name, you're to call him and give him the name Jesus. And with that, maybe Mary really figured something serious was up, because in the ancient era East, a parent always had the right to name their kid. Why? Because it was their kid. They were responsible for them. They were in charge of them. They had authority over them, and it was their responsibility to give them the name of their choice. But Gabriel says, not with this kid. Mary, uh, this son who's coming into your life, he's the one in charge. You don't name God, God names you. And so Mary conceived, 
And she says, may your word to me be uh, fulfilled. And she surrenders herself to the will and the work of God, accepting the good news. And by faith, she headed out, not knowing exactly what was going to happen, but clearly recognizing her own need of God's grace and eventually singing, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. See, in many ways, Mary's story is unique from all others. And yet, in, in, other, in other ways, it's the same. It's the story of, of a person hearing the good news of Jesus, you know, the Son of God born to rescue us and give us life. It's, it's thinking through the news. It's it's processing it, it's it's questioning it, it's deciding whether or not to accept and believe it. And in order to be a Christian, that's a journey every one of us in this room has to make. Moving from skepticism to faith, where you personally acknowledge and embrace the offer and reality of God's grace. And it's not saying that it's not saying, okay, now I'm gonna go to church every Sunday and I'm gonna I'm gonna be religious, I'm gonna follow a set of rules and regulations, I'm gonna do my best to be a good person. No, no, no. It's humbly saying to the Most High God, because you've loved me enough to lower yourself and be vulnerable, vulnerable because you've come to rescue me and graciously give me life, man, I may have some lingering questions and doubts, but as best as I can, I'm going to believe. And I submit and by faith follow Jesus. And wherever you take me, God, whatever you ask of me, I accept I am your servant. Are we willing to say that? I mean, this young, unwed virgin girl who in her day was at the bottom of the social strata She said it and she meant it. And now, some 2,000 years later, everyone in the room knows her name and her story. And she's one of the most famous and influential individuals in the history of the world. Mary essentially was the first to hear the gospel of Jesus, the good news of God's love and grace as we hear it today. And if our response is like hers, one of faith and surrender, then Mary's song can be our song this Christmas. I hope it's yours. Let's pray. Our Father, we recognize, I hope we recognize that there's no way that we can fully comprehend who you are as our creator, what exactly you're like, why you do the things you do, how you've brought this world into existence, how you've brought us into existence. There are always going to be lingering questions in our minds. There are always going to be lingering doubts. And, but if there weren't any, then we wouldn't need faith. And so I'm grateful that you've revealed yourself to us through through the world around us, the reality of of a creator. You've revealed yourself through the written word of the scriptures. You revealed yourself most fully in Jesus. You have come for us. You have come to get us. You've come to heal us and to rescue us and give us life. And the question is, have we moved from skepticism to belief? If we have, then may we sing the song of Mary and say, you know, my spirit glorifies the Lord, my Savior. And if not, Lord, I pray that this Christmas we would be continuing, continually to process and understand what the message of Christmas is really about. Your love and grace uh, expressed through Jesus, who is the Christ, the Savior, the Messiah. And it's him we worship today. In his name we pray. Amen.